Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 3 and verses 21 through 31. Let's hear now God's Word, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is He not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. May God bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking together the Lord's help and blessing, let's turn back to Romans chapter 3, focusing our attention upon verses 23 and 24. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So he's telling us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he speaks of the salvation that has come to all believers. That we being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. According to Paul, humanity has a massive debt problem. Now, the phrase massive debt problem shouldn't be all that unfamiliar to us in our own day. Uh, Living in an age with fractional reserve banking, and you look at the uh, ratio between the assets that the bank has and the liabilities that it has, uh, in fact, maybe you shouldn't look at that, it might discourage you. Uh, You look at the statistics when it comes to consumer debt, corporate debt, sovereign debt. 
Uh, in preparation for this sermon, I went back to some sermon notes that I had from way back when, when we were in the, the Gospel of Matthew, considering the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the, the, the amount of national debt that I quoted in that sermon is so much smaller than what it is today, I won't even mention it. Again, there's enough bad news with sin, we don't need to think about our financial system. But, but sin is a debt, my friends. Sin is the ultimate debt. And Paul is saying that we have all fallen short. We've all come up short. We've all sinned. And, and when Jesus refers to our sins as debts in the Lord's Prayer, He does that because that's a very helpful illustration of what sin is in the sight of God. And because we've all sinned, it's a debt problem that we all need to take very, very seriously. A debt is an obligation. We could say in one sense that we're indebted to obey God in thought, word, and deed. But I think specifically when Jesus says that we're to pray, forgive us our debts, when He compares sin with debt, He's thinking, first of all, of a debt of punishment. The fact that we have sinned means that we have incurred a debt of punishment. Debt is something that you deserve. If you loan out money, you deserve to receive it back. It is your just due to receive it back. But you see, when we sin, we deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. The soul who sins shall die. Sin brings misery. Not just because sin is stupid and foolish and it brings about consequences that create misery. That's a whole phenomenon in itself. But from a judicial standpoint, sin deserves misery. Deserves punishment from the hand of God. Paul alludes to this in Romans 2, verse 3. So in the previous chapter, verse 3, he's speaking primarily here to self-righteous, hypocritical Jews who are joining Paul in his condemnation of the Gentiles for all of their perversion and wickedness, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, disobeying the law of God written on their heart. And the Jews are are saying, Amen, Paul. And, And Paul says to them, Not so fast. Uh, This judgment is against everyone who breaks God's law. And God's law condemns every sinner to the due reward of punishment. He says, verse 3, Do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Now listen to what he says here, verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You are storing up treasuring up wrath for the day of wrath. God's judicial ledger is recording all of your ingratitude. All of the blessings that He's bestowed on you that you've wasted. Think of it like a credit card. Okay? 
Think of the the good things in this life that God gives even to His enemies. Think of these things as credit. You're breathing His air. You're eating His food. You're enjoying His real estate. He owns everything. The cattle on a thousand hills. Right? You're, You're eating when you eat your hamburger. Okay, God owns all these things. You are living on His expense according to the good things that He has created and that He has bestowed upon you. And you're abusing these things. And come judgment day, you will not only be called account for your sins against God, but you'll be held accountable for all the good things in this life that you abused. All the physical blessings, all of the national blessings, all of the personal and family blessings, uh, all of the spiritual blessings, the privileges of the covenant for those who like Esau uh, barter them away for a mess of pottage, a, a bowl of red stew. You see, uh, you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. You're increasing the ledger of debt. The debit column includes all of the things you've done to dishonor God. And as I said, like a credit card, it includes all that you've spent on yourself. You see, some people think, well, uh, to really uphold God's justice and God's holiness, we deny that God ever gives any good things to wicked people who go to hell. No, it's the opposite. It's actually the opposite. The fact that He gives these good things that ought to lead them to repentance increases their guilt and magnifies God's justice and holiness at the last day so that He can say to the rich man in the parable in hell, you received your good things in this life, but now you receive your just reward. It's a debt of punishment. Our sins and our mismanagement of God's good gifts. We deserve hell for these things. Uh, Romans 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. When we serve sin, when we commit sin. Jesus says everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And when we do that, this is the kind of slavery that actually does pay wages. And God always pays the minimum wage. Death. A debt of punishment for all mankind having fallen short of God's glory. And that reminds us of the second aspect of this debt problem, and that is debt slavery. The borrower, Solomon says, is a servant to the lender. Proverbs 22, verse 7. The borrower is servant to the lender. When you owe a sum of money that you cannot repay, historically in human society, very often you were put in bondage, in slavery, to at least incrementally perhaps in some way pay that off perhaps if you had a, a, a you know a lesser debt perhaps you could pay it off but if you had an insurmountable debt and there's no path forward to pay it off you would be put into debt slavery and that's the condition of all mankind by nature again he who sins is a slave to sin john chapter 8 verse 34 and throughout this book of romans Paul is harping on this point again and again and again that sin is slavery. 
And that if we've all sinned, if we're all living in sin, if there's no one righteous, no, not one, it's not simply that we deserve hell in the world to come, but we are, as it were, manifesting hell on earth in our own hearts, in our own lives, through bondage to sin. Bondage to sin personally, bondage to sin in our families, in our communities, in our nation, in our world. Death slavery to sin. We simply cannot uh, overcome its influence. Romans 6, verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Slavery or servanthood, if you will, is inevitable. We saw that in the very first verse of this epistle. Paul calls himself a slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, Bob Dylan makes the point. It's inevitable. You're going to serve somebody. And if you're serving sin, you're enslaved to it. He goes on, chapter 6, verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. He's saying, I'm giving a, an illustration. And we're thankful for these things. We, we need these things. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Now what he's saying is, if you're, let's use his example here, uncleanness. If you're living in sexual uncleanness, whether it's uh, the movies that you watch, whether it's pornography on the internet, whether it's lusting after people that you see jogging down the street, whether it's full-fledged fornication, adultery, if you are sexually unclean, if that's your pattern of life, the Apostle Paul is saying that in fact, you're not making that choice freely. You're, you're not actually in a situation where you're saying, well, here's God over here, and here's the Bible, and here's what it says that I should do, and I've just chosen to live in sin, but I could, I could choose otherwise at any point. This is just how I'm going to live my life. I'm in complete control. And, and this is how I want to live, and I'm in complete control of all of these things. That is not the case. You are enslaved. You are in bondage. I'm not denying that you're making choices for which you'll be held accountable. But you're not in control. And the fact is, if I said, stop looking at pornography on the internet, you couldn't. You couldn't in yourself. You could not stop. You say, but it's what I want to do. And isn't freedom doing what you want to do? No, my friends, uh, go to a rehab clinic. There are many people who understand full well what the Bible proclaims from Genesis to Revelation that true freedom is not doing what I want to do. Because there are many things I may want to do that are self-destructive, totally destroying my relationships, my family, my life. No, true freedom is doing what you know you ought to do. Doing what you know is best to do. But when you're living in a lifestyle of sin, yes, you're making choices, but you're not in control. Sin is in control. Sin is a harsh taskmaster, and the worst form of slavery is when you think you're free, but in reality, you're in bondage. The same could be true of any sin. We could go up and down the list of sins in the Ten Commandments throughout the Scriptures. We could look even at the sin of unbelief, rejecting the Christian faith. It's slavery. It's bondage. 
and it's a debt slavery because when God uh, warned Adam in the garden, He said, the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Dying you shall die. And He wasn't simply talking about the process of death and decay that began the instant that Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Death in trespasses and sins. Alienated from the life of God, Ephesians 4. Such that when that spiritual death and physical death come together at at, uh, the moment where we leave this world, we enter into the second death. Hell itself. But it involves that spiritual death. So, spiritual depravity, uh, uh, sinfulness of our nature, that fallenness, that depravity of human nature that comes after Adam and Eve sinned is a judicial punishment for their sin on our behalf. We receive it as a punishment. And that's why throughout the book of Romans, it's very important that we understand the logic of the Gospel that first, Jesus deals with the guilt of our sin, and then once He's dealt with the guilt of our sin, then He sanctifies us and liberates us from the bondage to sin that was the result, the judicial penalty or consequence of the guilt of our sin. So we have this debt problem. The debt of punishment and debt slavery to sin. And this is not a debt that we can pay ourselves. This is not a debt that we can say, all right, how much is it going to be? We go, you know, we, we pick up our phone, we, we move some funds around, we transfer them to God, and God is satisfied. There's, this is not a debt that we can pay. We sang from Psalm 49 words that ought to resonate as we consider our text this morning. Psalm 49, verse 6, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother. So nobody can pay this debt for you. Say, I have a wealthy uncle. Sorry. He can't pay it. You can't pay it. Nobody can pay this debt, nor give to God a ransom for Him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever. In other words, the debt of punishment is everlasting punishment. Because it's infinite in measure. You sin against an infinite God, you receive infinite punishment. Eternal conscious torment in hell at the hands of our eternal and just God. It's not something you can pay. It's infinite. It's it's out of your price range. It's above your tax bracket. You're not going to be able to pay this debt. Nobody can pay this debt for you. There are many religious groups. You can pay them money and they'll say your debt's paid and they'll absolve you and, and they'll do pretty much whatever ceremony or Uh, ritual that you want, you can pay off preachers, but you can't pay off God. Because He owns everything. Uh, We're told, for the redemption of their souls is costly. He goes on, that He should not continue, or that He should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. So the price, the price to pay this debt of punishment 
the price to redeem from this debt slavery and the purchase price of eternal life is impossible for us to pay. Even the Old Testament sacrifices could not pay this debt. And there was a lot of confusion in Jesus' day and perhaps in our own day. Many Christians who think the Old Testament sacrifices were sufficient to pay for the sins of Old Testament saints and nothing could be further from the truth. We saw that in Psalm 40. We're not going to turn there at the moment. We'll look at that in a second. But, but Paul in Hebrews 10.4 says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. How much more clear does he have to be to get the point across? Old Testament saints were not saved by the blood of bulls and goats. They were not saved by the Old Testament sacrifices. And that's a whole other discussion of, of the role of those sacrifices and the part they played in God's covenant with Moses and the way in which God did bestow salvation upon His people. Those sacrifices were important as a means of pointing ahead to the redemption that was to come as an outward manifestation of their faith in the Savior to come. But those Old Testament sacrifices could not remove this debt of sin. And in our own day, there's all too much confusion over this very point. And you have at the center of it, as always, the Church of Rome with its many superstitious alternatives to the biblical plan of redemption. The Roman Catholic Church telling you that uh, your debt can be paid through penance. If you go to the priest and confess your sin and he writes out on a slip of paper or whatever, tells you these things you need to do, say however many Hail Marys and Our Fathers and all of these things, if you do these works, if you perform these rituals, then you can pay down your debt. Uh, or if you write a check to the church, uh, you, you want to get out of your marriage and marry somebody else but it's not biblical uh, criteria. Church of Rome is happy to oblige. They'll just uh, have you sign a check for several thousand dollars. You pay it to them and they will annul that marriage. Uh, I've met people that, that were frustrated because they didn't have the money. They wanted to do that. Uh, and they were Catholics. They couldn't take communion in the Catholic church till they paid up the, the, the fee. You can pay the church throughout history, the Roman Catholic church. You can buy indulgences uh, where the church will declare your sins forgiven if you pay a certain amount of money. Uh, according to the church of Rome, your debt can be paid by the saints, by Mary, by all of these godly people who throughout church history have not only obeyed God's law to God's satisfaction, but they've done all of these extra works. They've done all this extra credit and there's a treasury of merit at your disposal. And if you pay into the treasury of the Church of Rome, the Church of Rome will cut a spiritual check to you. And out of that treasury of merit, you will receive uh, absolution. You will receive a cancellation of these various debts of sin. Not only that, but when you die, they say if you're a, a good Catholic, you'll go to purgatory. And whatever debts you haven't paid, you can just suffer in purgatory in the flames of that uh, painful place. You can suffer there till all of your debts are paid. And oh, by the way, your family members still on earth can, can continue to contribute to the Roman Catholic Church 
and, uh, and they'll take time off of your stay in purgatory. They have the keys of the kingdom, right? And, and what was it? The Pope a number of years ago said, if you join his Twitter feed, if you become a follower of the Pope on Twitter, you'll take time off purgatory, okay? But you see, Roman Catholic superstitions cannot pay down your debt. Uh, the so-called treasury of the merits of the saints and of Mary cannot pay down your debt. Isaiah 64.6 says, even our best works of righteousness are as filthy rags. So even, even if we said Mary was the godliest woman who ever lived, okay, but even her righteousnesses are as filthy rags because they're polluted by sin. Uh, even the Apostle Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. All of the so-called saints and Great figures in church history, uh, all of their works are stained with sin. Even the great Isaiah, one of the godliest men in the Old Testament, says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And Jesus says in Luke 17.10, even if you did do all that was required of you, you ought to basically humble yourself and confess, we are but unworthy servants. That's the mindset Jesus has toward this idea of extra credit. Super arrogation, they call it. He says, no, you're unworthy servants even if you did it all. You can't, uh, you, you can't shoot past. You can't get extra credit and do more than the law requires. And as far as purgatory, Hebrews 1.3 tells us all we need to know about purgatory. There's only one purgatory that's mentioned in the Bible, and it says of Jesus Christ, when He had Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So who is the one who brings purgation from sin? Who is the one that accomplishes purgatory for His people? It is the Lord Jesus Christ who through His perfect offering of Himself on the cross he Himself purged our sins. And my friends, there's nothing we could possibly add to that. So Roman Catholic superstitions can't pay for this debt. And many people in our day say, okay, well, I'm not going to try to pay this down. That's crass and old-fashioned. I'm not going to pay the Pope. But I'm expecting God, who is a merciful God, to simply cancel my debt on Judgment Day. I'm expecting God, in a sort of what we would say is arbitrary sense, they wouldn't say that. They would just say, well, I'm expecting God to cancel my debt. I think He'll accept me into heaven because He's just a nice guy. He's just a merciful God. But my friends, God will not arbitrarily cancel your debt. If you look at our text... Chapter 3, verse 24, it does say being justified freely by His grace. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It's not as though sinners are made right with God simply by God having favor towards them and saying, well, I, I, I'm going to bestow my favor on this one. I'm going to freely choose to justify this sinner. The word freely, we've already seen uh, is elsewhere translated without a cause. And so, you know, it's not as though God simply 
sets His favor upon a sinner and without a cause justifies them and makes them right with Him. Because verse 24 doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. It's not merely favor bestowed on undeserving sinners. It's not merely a justification that is without a cause in every sense. But rather, there is a cause. It's not a cause in the sinner. There's nothing in the sinner that warrants or merits God's acceptance. God's uh, reconciling power to save them from sin. Nothing in the sinner deserves that unmerited favor of grace. But there is a cause. And Paul is quick to clarify that God is able to show grace and set His favor upon sinners and to give them righteousness in exchange for their sin. He's able to do that through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the only way for God to be just and the justifier of ungodly people who put their trust in Him. That's the only way that God is able to save sinners while demonstrating His righteousness. That He doesn't cut corners. That He's not taking shortcuts. That He's not being arbitrary. The God that you think on Judgment Day is going to say, well, it's not that big of a deal. You can go into heaven. Um, Don't worry about it. The God who would arbitrarily justify people without any cause, without any just cause, is a figment of your imagination. And on Judgment Day, you're not going to stand before that imaginary God. You're going to stand before the real God who is just and the justifier, not of random people arbitrarily, but of those who have faith in Christ. Those who have been united to Christ. Those who by faith have cast all their sins on the Savior and who by faith have received His perfect righteousness. See, God does not clear the guilty. Moses asked to see God's glory and God declared it to him in Exodus 34. Jehovah declared His name and His character to Moses. Declared all of His goodness. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. We're told that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. And you see, once again, this is the danger where we take half of a verse, we run with it, we say, well, I heard God was merciful. I heard that from from a preacher, a religious leader at one point, and I'm going to cling to that, and God is merciful and gracious, so I'm not so worried about my sin. But listen, He doesn't stop there. Keeping mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin by no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. So it's saying God is just. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That's every kind of sin. He forgives, but He does not clear. What's the difference? Well, in Hebrew, the word forgive means to bear, to carry. This is a word that's applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53, uh, He carried our sorrows. He bore our sins. This word forgive means to take, to bear through the redemption. How does God save sinners? In the person of His Son, He bears their sin. 
He takes their sin upon Himself. And and we're told that the Lord placed upon Him the iniquity of us all. That's how God deals with sin. He doesn't just clear it. He doesn't just arbitrarily cancel it out. That is not going to happen. Romans 2, 5, and 6 tells us that by refusing to cast your sins on Christ and receive and rest in His righteousness, by refusing to surrender yourself to Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your prophet, your priest, and your King, you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. So there you go. It's a sure thing. And we see, as it were, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven even now. We see God's judgment in this world. But the Apostle Paul says that the wrath of that great day against sinners in calling home their debts once and for all will be so magnificent so terrifying and horrific for those sinners that it's as if we know nothing of the wrath of God until it's revealed. In some sense, for the first time in that day of God's righteous judgment. Dear friend, you need a Redeemer. You don't need an animal sacrifice. You don't need to become a follower of the Pope's Twitter page. You need a Savior. You don't need some namby-pamby religion that says, oh, someday God will be merciful to me arbitrarily. No, you need Jesus Christ through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And my friends, this redemption is only in Christ Jesus. There's no other hope. There's no other way. Now in New Testament Greek, the word redeem uh, means to buy back, to pay the ransom. This is the idea when Jesus cried out in victory on the cross, it is finished. The idea is it's paid in full. Jesus has purchased salvation for His people. Jesus has paid the debt of punishment. He's paid the price of liberation and redemption from bondage to sin, guilt of sin. He's paid it all. He's suffered. He's obeyed. His obedience and sacrifice is complete. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. He has made Himself a ransom for many. That's the idea in the New Testament. But when Paul uses this word redemption, and really when that concept appears in the New Testament, it's really drawing on a rich meaning that we find throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament in Hebrew, the term redeemer or the term redemption, we've sung this word in almost all, if not all, the psalms that we're singing this morning. Uh, In Hebrew, this idea of redemption portrays a vivid picture of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture. Let's consider this picture of redemption that we find in the Old Testament. Now, it's important to realize in Hebrew, the term uh, redeemer and really any of the derivatives of this term to redeem, redemption, all these things, the word that's used for these in its root means a close relative. That is what the word means. When we, for instance, use the phrase kinsman redeemer, That's a helpful way to try to bring out that meaning in English, 
but it's not that there's a word for kinsman and a word for redeemer. Every time you see the word redeem, redemption, redeemer, it always has a word embedded in it that means a close relative. So every redeemer is a kinsman redeemer. Every redemption has that element, that connotation. There's something of that, and I think the, for the Hebrew-speaking people, this would have given them a perspective on redemption that we don't find, per se, in our English copies of the Old Testament. A redeemer was a close relative, a kinsman. You see this in a number of passages, Numbers 5, verse 8. Ruth 3, verse 9. We're not going to look these up, but you can see when this word is used, it's often translated, as it is in Numbers 5, 8, just as relative. So often in the Old Testament, the books of Moses, when you see the word relative, often it's this same word for kinsman redeemer or redeemer. So it can refer to a relative. It's obviously at the heart of the story in the book of Ruth as well. But my friends, when, when Paul says through the redemption, he is saying that this price has been paid by one who is Emmanuel, God with us. One who has made himself poor, come into our experience, flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. One who has uh, uh, emptied himself, as it were, of any claim on his own divine glory and who has made himself a bondservant in our place, walking this earth, breathing the air, looking up at the same sun, the same moon, Jesus Christ has redeemed us first and foremost by becoming incarnate. The Word who was made flesh and tabernacled among us. This Jesus whom the Bible says is a friend closer than a brother who can sympathize with all of our experiences in principle. He's tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. This Word made flesh. This man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. This One of whom it says, Isaiah 63, verse 9, in all of our affliction, He is afflicted. My friends, redemption is not a sort of impersonal transaction. We can speak of what happened at the cross of Christ taking our sin and we then at our justification receiving His perfect righteousness. We can speak of it in terms of words like imputation. We can call it the great exchange. And and the critics of these types of terms, they say, well, it's just this, it's all impersonal. It's all just a sort of financial, judicial transaction. And my friends, those people that say that, though they be great scholars and should know better, my friends, if they're storing up wrath for the day of wrath for themselves. Because the fact of the matter is, the biblical picture of redemption has embedded within it this idea of a kinsman redeemer who comes and who is one of us. Who is to us ahead and we the members. Who is to us the vine and we the branches. Who, who is to us uh, the, the, the bridegroom throughout the Song of Solomon. Intimate in His communion and fellowship with His own people. They shall call Him Jesus for He shall save His people. See the intimacy. His people from their sins. It's a close relative that we can 
uh, know for certain, understands exactly how we feel, understands everything. Uh, In addition, this Redeemer is one who pays the price. Uh, In the Old Testament, like in the book of Ruth, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi had sold the family's land in Canaan, their, their portion in the promised land. They had sold it essentially mortgaged it. You couldn't permanently sell your land. So it's kind of like Monopoly. You know, you still have the card uh, for the property, but you mortgage it to get some money. It's essentially a form of debt, a, a lien that's on the property, a mortgage, an obligation. And uh, Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer, paid that debt, as we'll see in a moment, to restore the inheritance. That's important too. But paying the debts, that's what the kinsman redeemer would do and uh, psalm 49 tells us that uh, a kinsman redeemer in that con- in a human context like that in the old testament couldn't pay this debt for you this debt of sin and yet there's an illustration of it uh, y- your relative can't pay your sin debt but there's an illustration of the lord's redemption of his people through christ in this paying of the price by the kinsman redeemer remember psalm 40 sacrifices and offerings you did not desire but christ says to the father uh, you, you desired my obedience a willing a ready and open ear to do your will i take delight You've given me a body. I've offered myself on the cross. Not my will, but Your will be done. Christ Himself paid the price through His obedience and sacrifice. And this is one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption he pays the price he pays the ransom for many it is finished he has done it what was written in the book of god's eternal decree and throughout the books of the old testament he has done it he has fulfilled it he has sustained and suffered the penalty he has drank the cup of wrath to the very last drop the, the wrath that you and I deserve, dear believer, He has paid the penalty. He's paid the fine to the uttermost farthing, to the last penny. And He's accomplished the precepts that God said, if you're going to have eternal life, rich young ruler, keep the commandments. Well, He's done that too. The debt of obligation to obedience. He's kept those precepts. He's fulfilled all righteousness. The one who knew no sin, nor was deceit, found in His mouth. Behold, He says, I've come to do Thy will. And He did it perfectly, even unto death on the cross for His own people. He has paid the price. And in addition, this Redeemer would restore the inheritance. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25 says this, If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative, that's our word, comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. We we saw this in some sense with uh, Ruth and Boaz and, and Naomi. 
But the point here is that God designed it in such a way that this kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament could restore the inheritance that had been mortgaged, that had been frittered away by the, the, perhaps in some cases, the foolishness of those who sold it. But in any event, He restores that. And He's restored the inheritance that we had in Adam and Eve. Uh, He's restored that hope of one day spending eternity in a place where there is no sin. He has restored that fellowship. Adam and Eve walked with God, and guess what? Through Christ and His redemption, so did Enoch. So did Noah. So does every believer to one extent or another. But you know, He hasn't merely restored the inheritance that Adam had. He's also restored and purchased the inheritance that was offered to Adam, that Adam should have had. That had Adam obeyed God's commandment and fulfilled God's law and had not uh, fallen prey to the temptation of the serpent, if he had fulfilled, as it were, the covenant of works unto life, guess what? Adam would have received eternal life on behalf of all his posterity. Eternal, unlosable righteousness and life. Jesus has given us what Adam failed to achieve. And in fact, Jesus has restored unto us far more than even Adam could have obtained in that our eternal inheritance as believers, the eternal life in heaven that we will enjoy, will not only be eternal life in a fellowship with our covenant God, but we now are able to to spend eternity in Emmanuel's land. To see our God in human flesh face to face. To see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, just like when, when Naaman the leper was healed, his skin didn't just go back to what it was before. It was restored, but it was as the skin of a little baby. It was even better. That's how God redeems His people through Christ. He restores our inheritance and, and beyond what we can ask or imagine. It, it has not entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love Him. This is through the redemption. He's purchased it. And, and He sets us free, just like the kinsman redeemer. Again, you can go into Leviticus chapter 25 and you can see how the kinsman redeemer uh, could purchase his brother, his relative from slavery. He could pay the purchase price and redeem his relative from bondage. And as Jesus says in John 8, if you, if you commit sin, you're a slave of sin. But also, He says this, if the Son of God sets you free, you're free indeed. If the Son of God has paid for the debt of your sin, you're, you're let out of the prison of sin. If, you've getting, if you get pardoned by the governor, okay, they're eventually going to let you out of the prison. If you've been pardoned of your sin, of the guilt of sin, Jesus is going to liberate you from the bondage of sin, which was originally the consequence of sin. And we're told throughout the book of Romans that we are free from sin. Read Romans 6. Let not sin have dominion over you, dear believer, because in reality, you ought to reckon yourself dead to sin. That your bondage to sin is over. You're free from sin. And even in Romans 7, when Paul says, at times I feel as if I'm, 
uh, sold in bondage to sin. I'm sold under sin. Even at times believers fall back into the practice of sin and it, is, it, it really reminds them of bondage to sin that they had before their conversion. But even that problem of being sold under sin while you're a believer, we're told in Romans chapter 8 that by the grace of God, you are set free by the law of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That you, in fact, are set free not only from the condemnation, but the power of sin. And by God's grace, uh, you will kill sin. You will put it to death. And if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then uh, He'll give life to your mortal bodies. You'll have the spirit of adoption, not the spirit of bondage, and you will obey God increasingly with His law written upon your heart. Freedom from sin. Jesus, through the redemption, He frees you from the world as well. Paul says in Galatians 1 that His people are delivered from this present evil age. Delivered from it. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says that through the precious blood of Christ, not silver and gold, but the precious blood of Christ, that ransom payment from Christ, he says you are redeemed from that sinful pattern of your forefathers. Don't think you have to continue in the unbelief and disobedience and ungodly worldliness of your parents, your grandparents. If you've been brought to faith in Christ, Peter says through the blood of Christ, you're redeemed from sin, the guilt of sin, the power of sin, a heritage, a background of sin. You're redeemed, you're cleansed, you're a new creature. And you're redeemed and liberated from the power of Satan. Hebrews 2 tells us that Satan, one of the ways in which he manipulates us is through the fear of death. He manipulates us in many ways, but Hebrews 2.14, we're told, "...inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, Christ Himself likewise shared in the same, that through death He might destroy Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage." The blood of Christ redeems you from fear from anxiety, from that sense of dread and despair that, as we've said before in recent weeks, can easily come in the month of February in Michigan. Praise God for the, 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 the sunlight and the warm weather. But, but the reality is, the blood of Christ, it liberates you. It redeems you, as Jacob said, from all evil. God works that evil for good and you're able now to deal with all of your present circumstances and all future possibilities, being able to say with the psalmist, into your hands, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Freed, liberated from bondage. In addition, uh, just briefly, and and I'll bring this to a close in a moment, uh, the kinsman redeemer was the avenger of blood. You can read about that in Numbers 35, 19-20. Uh, the kinsman redeemer, if somebody murdered his relative, he would chase them down and he was authorized to bring judgment upon that murderer. My friends, through the redemption, through the redemption, not only does God redeem His people from bondage as He did Israel, but He drowns Pharaoh. He crushes the serpent's head. He defeats and overcomes 
the world. Colossians 2, 14 and 15, he makes an open show and spectacle of Satan and his kingdom at the cross of Calvary. You can read of Isaiah 63, 1-6, of he who comes from Edom with all his garments stained in blood. That is not speaking of Christ's shed blood at the cross, my friends. Read it carefully. It's speaking of Jesus Christ on the warpath, conquering and defeating the enemies of His people and leaving a trail of blood. You don't want to mess with Jesus. He's a compassionate high priest. He's a gracious Savior, but He is the avenger of blood who crushes the serpent and the seed thereof. And He's the widow's help. You see this with Boaz marrying Ruth when her other relative, closer in proximity, refused. Uh, that, as we say, that, that was a ruthless individual, but the fact is he wouldn't do it. He was willing to pay to redeem the inheritance. He was willing to take on the land. He was not willing. He was not willing to marry Ruth and raise up a seed uh, for uh, her husband. Well, the fact of the matter is, Jesus is willing to take on sinners as his very own. He's willing to marry our, the, the widow. Uh, Romans 7, Paul says that uh, we were married to the law, but now we have been set free and married to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, my brethren, Romans 7, 4, you've also become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Jesus marries us. He loves us. He takes us. He washes us with water by the Word. He enables us to bear fruit. He raises up godly offspring. I mean, we we could spend lots of time on it, but Jesus Christ is the widow's help. And my friends, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, every time the Lord's people called Jehovah their Redeemer, when Job said, I know my Redeemer lives, Uh, When God in Isaiah throughout the entire book again and again and again, take Isaiah 41.14 as an example, He declares, I am the Redeemer of My people. What is He saying? He's saying, and they are saying, that Jehovah is the kinsman Redeemer. You think the Old Testament saints didn't expect an incarnation? The ones who were paying attention to God's Word, the ones who are paying attention to the meaning of the very word Redeemer throughout the Hebrew Bible, uh, you better believe many of them were expecting a God-man media. They were expecting the Lord of the Covenant to become their kinsman Redeemer and to stand on the earth and to come and pay for their sins and to redeem them from all evil. My friends, the kinsman Redeemer is not only a picture of what Jehovah does for His people, But the Lord Jesus Christ, the image and brightness of the Father's glory, is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Emmanuel. God with us. Every time in the Psalms when we sing of the Redeemer, understand Jehovah is not just up there, out there, transcendent. He is our Redeemer as our kinsman, as our close relative, as our older brother, the firstborn among many brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if He were not both God and man, 
He could not reconcile men to God. He could not pay the infinite price and suffer the infinite punishment. If He were not man, He could not represent us before the Father as the second Adam. My friends, this is a beautiful redemption. But ultimately, it is a redemption that points us to our own status as those who have been bought with a price. Don't simply meditate on the glories of redemption. Bring it all back down home to your own experience, to your own life. Is that how you view yourself, dear Christian? Do you view yourself as bought with a price? Do you view yourself the way Paul does in Romans 8.12 as a debtor to grace? You say, oh, I don't like that phrase. Paul likes it. God likes it. It's in the Bible. Get over it. We're debtors to grace. We have a duty. 2 Corinthians 5.15 We have a duty that, that we would live for the One who died for us. We are debtors to His grace. We're not debtors to the law. We're not debtors to Satan. We're not debtors, we're not debtors to the world. We owe no man anything but to love our neighbor. Romans 13, verse 8. We are servants and slaves of Jesus Christ. Debtors only to His grace. And that's a liberating thought. You only have to obey God. If God said, obey your husband, obey your parents, obey the government, I get it. You have to obey them by extension. But, but you're not in bondage to anyone. But you are bought with a price. A debtor to the grace of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks that through the redemption, You have purchased us as Your own. We pray that You would cause these truths to bear much fruit by way of thoughtful meditation in our hearts and minds, by way of gracious words, and by way of imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We pray in His name. Amen.